Kachimona listeners. I am very excited to bring you this episode of season four. This is a special episode where I bring Magna back onto the podcast and we discuss the second half of Bullshit Jobs, which was a book that I chose for the lit review this season. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that follows me, Yvette, and my journey as a movement lawyer and audio archives the fierce resistance happening in southern Arizona. As the daughter of Salvadoran immigrants, I also uplift the voices of Central American histories and peoples on this podcast. So this episode, as I said, is kind of a special one to try and entice you all to become Lit Review patrons. You will get first access to episodes like these. It's it's a great way to support me as I do host and produce the podcast on my own and it is something that I would like to be able to switch away from doing in terms of the audio editing and I'd actually like to focus more on the hosting and the content producing which really is my favorite part of the show. So thank you so much to everyone who is a patron. I really appreciate it. And so on this episode apart from talking about David Graeber's bullshit jobs, Magna comes back onto the podcast to give an update on vaccine distribution in India. We discussed the gender dimension of the bullshitization of jobs, share which aspects of lawyering are bullshit, and shine a light on those profiteering from COVID-19. I hope that you all enjoy this podcast. You can also support the podcast non-monetarily by leaving a rating and review. This is actually really important because podcasts don't get featured on platforms unless they're regularly getting rated and reviewed. And I have not had a review since June or July. So please, 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 if you can just take five minutes out of your day to leave a review sharing why you're listening to this right now. And you can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I continue the conversations from the podcast there as well. And I hope that you all enjoy this interview. I'm very excited today to have Magna Sridhar back on the podcast to continue discussing Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber, but also to kind of talk in an updated way about what has been happening with vaccine rollout in India. But before we get into it, Magna, I just wanted to ask how you are and what you've done for self-care lately. I'm feeling good. And what I did for self-care lately in line with bullshit jobs is quit my <laughs> yes. job. Yeah, It's just the best form of self-care. And I genuinely feel like a different person. I feel the stress yes. is leaving my body, which is great. I recommend oh it to everyone who can afford to do it. I know. I've been telling people that I think it's an experience everybody needs to have at least once in their life is to very righteously quit a job that has yeah. been exploiting you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Isn't it the best feeling? 
Yes. Like I remember when I did that, I felt so fucking empowered. Like I remember I'd walked into my colleague's office and I was like, I just quit. (laughs) And she was like, whoa, really? Right now? I was like, yeah, right now. Join me. (laughs) Oh my God. That is, I don't think you ever told me your quitting story. That's amazing. Oh, I know. For a while, every day I had to psych myself up to not quit. That was where I was at mentally. And then there was a moment where I just felt so thrown under the bus by my manager. And I just kind of had this revelation where I was like, I'm being set up to fail here because I'm being given really complex assignments and I'm not being supported. And this is not normal. Like I graduated from law school nine months ago. (laughs) This immigration brief is something that other people need to read and other people need help me out on. And then I got totally thrown under their bus and it was like all framed as like a a deficiency about like within myself as a lawyer, which by the way, is exactly how you push women of color out of this profession because you make them think it's about them when actually you're not offering them the proper support. At some point I was just like, I'm just really upset because you're not supporting me. Like you don't read the stuff that I have to write and then submit to the court. Oh my God. Yes. And then the they were like I don't like your attitude and I was yeah like and then I said okay well I'm gonna quit thanks (laughs) (laughs) I just fucking left like she was trying to push me out you know what I mean like it's like when someone is being that unsupportive and that mean honestly they're actually like trying to push you out. And so when I, when I said that, she wasn't even surprised. She just slowly nodded her head and was like, okay. What the hell? Like, yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, we can talk about it later. And I was like, all right. Wow. <laughs> later, hater. <laughs> oh my And then I like stormed into my colleague office and I was like, I just quit. <laughs> yes. It's just so depressing that like I know exactly invested in making you stay or anything. They're just like, yep. Oh no, it, no, it wasn't even that. It was like, oh like I mean I I honestly was like I think it's more than just neglect at this point. Like you're setting me up to fail and you're trying to get me out of this organization for whatever reason. And I mean I talked with my therapist about it and mm-hmm. she was like you're very sure of yourself and it's very clear with how you carry yourself that that you're sure of yourself and you believe in yourself and that's really intimidating to people who don't have that mm-hmm. and I was like oh, I'm sure you. it makes you harder to exploit and throw under the bus as well and if that's all they're looking for they're like oh yeah what's the point then oh I know they were fucking pissed it's like, God, why did she do such good work <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, we want to be able to give her, like, dump a bunch of stuff on her, blame her when things go wrong, inferiority complex, just make her blame then we don't have to deal with it. Yeah. And like, oh, no, you're self-assured and confident and want to learn and grow, then like, oh, yeah, we don't have to learn and grow. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have the resources to support that. It's like, it's just so depressing, because I feel this is the case in, like, whether it's private, the private sector, whether it's like nonprofits, I feel like that's just what the employment model is now. They know that this is what law, law students are like. They're like high strung and like work really hard and like blame themselves and have a lot of imposter syndrome. So they're like, yeah, the easiest way to handle this industry is to just take them, like leave them on their own. And uh, if they're more troubled than they're worth, we get another set because they all have a lot of debt and they'll take any job we give them. Well, I know this, so I've noticed this is especially true for like, watch, I would say 
y'all watch out for this, like organizations whose hiring model is continually hiring law grads. Mm -hmm. Look into that because what would happen is that they would hire law grads, literally the most optimistic, like earnest, fucking eager as fuck to finally do some real legal work. Individuals are like, you will burn out within a year they'll leave just in time for the fall hiring cycle for the next individuals. That's what I've seen. Yep. And it's a cycle and they don't, they're never held accountable to it because I mean, it is true generally so that millennials are more likely to leave a job that they find unsatisfactory for whatever reason than like previous generations. And especially within the nonprofit sector, it's kind of, it's just this expectation that people are always leaving Mm-hmm. and it's like come to be accepted as I don't know something cultural or just something inevitable and we're just like not talking about the fact that we have really shitty working conditions and people leave because they're just like trying you know trying to find the least shitty workplace yeah. like that's where I'm at right now I'm like and even when I'm a, like applying to new jobs I'm just like you know like I like talking over with my partner who'll be like oh you know like that that policy job like might might be really difficult to do you know it'll, it'll bring me problems x y and z and i'm just like yeah but i'm ready for problems x y and z because problems a b and c have me fed the fuck up <laughs> and at least and at least we'll have different problems now oh you my know? God. sometimes you just want new bullshit <laughs> yeah no that is so true like that's all it, the, the only options on the table are just changing your set of problems it's ridiculous <sighs> also i'm sure the whole idea of millennials staying at the job less is also because like it's no longer nine to fives that play well, like the pay well, because like yeah. if it was, then like you know, even if like you have a stupid job, you're like whatever. I go home at five. It's done. Yeah. You know, I get really well paid, so I have less of an incentive. Whereas for millennials, it's like, well, I'm really like struggling, working hard all the time, and earning no money anyway. So I might as well quit because it's not like I have a really good thing going on here. And then like people blame millennial work ethic or like, oh, they're babies who can't tolerate a terrible workplace and it's like no 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 like we grew up on like stuff like Simpsons in the office and like those kind of workplaces <laughs> don't exist anymore that pay like yeah. a salary and like let you off easy right it doesn't exist um, I know you've taught <laughs> Magna does that make you really sad like that Homer Simpson can't exist anymore because you you know you brought that up last time too it really does, it really, <laughs> it really does. like it's just it's insane I just I mean the whole oh uh, it just it makes me so sad just the whole idea of how this generation is just I know like a lot of people have good arguments about how it's not a generational thing because obviously like there are people who inherited a lot of wealth and that's Mm -hmm. true Mm -hmm. as well but like Mm -hmm. but you know I don't I don't know I still feel like in it just feels like you can't work hard and buy a house anymore and like leave your job at five like those are just unattainable things and it just it's a very uh ridiculous condition of the labor market yeah I mean I think with what like whether or not it's a generational thing like millennials and gen you know versus gen x and boomers or if we really need to be paying attention to the wealth gaps within millennials Mm -hmm. I think I think it's like it is true that there is an enormous wealth gap within millennials just numerically speaking I think there are more millennials who are struggling and who have not inherited wealth yeah Um, yeah 
And you think about like a lot of not insanely wealthy but solid upper middle class and like middle class millennials if they have siblings or they have like bigger families then I guess what they inherit gets split as well like it's not only children inheriting houses from their parents right so like if a a, you know a middle class couple owns a nice house but they have three kids then those three kids if they grow up with millennial conditions and can't buy houses of their own like they're going to inherit one third of a house so yeah. that's kind of you know it does kind of change like who's owning houses and how wealth is distributed well, and, like, if they learn about adverse possession they can just like you know openly and hostilely occupy the other two-thirds and then they'll eventually own all the houses <laughs> but then there'll still be two of them outside <laughs> i know i'm it's this is america baby <laughs> <laughs> exactly really complex property law and people being homeless so to get into the book I wanted to ask you if you identified with any of the vignettes in the book Garcia whose bosses hated him for his socialist politics so he wasn't assigned any work and so oh Oh my god that is so you that is like I know except it's like my anarchist politics not my socialist politics you know I'm not I'm not a go along to get along guy (laughs) so I wanted to point out that in Garcia tried to make the situation better like he was like well whatever I'm just gonna fuck around then but he like couldn't actually and he found the situation so demoralizing that actually he eventually had to go to therapy for his clinical depression and it's it is very demoralizing to get pushed out of stuff that where you're like wait like I think the the most the the biggest revelation of this book is that even if that you can be like well paid and have good health insurance and still be like mentally unwell Mm -hmm. because of the condition of a job where you're looked over and treated as unimportant and irrelevant yep yep I yeah I really I know we talked about this last time as well but the whole idea of spiritual violence Mm -hmm. the more and more I think about it the more it just feels so apt and like whoever most people I talk to with an office job whether it's like an insanely busy one or a not busy one at all like feel that to some to varying degrees yeah and just across all professions and income levels if you're working like a a desk job it just it feels it's yeah you just you feel like a part of yourself is completely like locked away and uh, yeah I've also part of yourself that has potential which I think is like the most debilitating part of it because that's the other biggest revelation is that even though capitalism tries to paint this picture of humans as lazy like we actually have an innate desire to contribute something to the social world yeah yeah exactly like nobody's extrapolating a bit from what he was saying but like nobody's like ideal bliss is just purely sitting on the couch and watching Netflix it is when you're really overworked right yes when you're you're burned out yeah when you're super burned out when you're really overworked of course that's the dream but like people are not going insane in like 18 months of lockdown because like they like you know when they have a lot of people like not everyone but a lot of people who had ideal quote-unquote ideal lockdown situations where they just you know work from home a little bit didn't work that hard could just stay at home you know lounge all day watch Netflix the common trend amongst those people is not this was the best time of our lives people were slowly going crazy like people's dream is not to do nothing like that's not you think of people's moments of wildest joy and it's always that like you know other people or creating something discovering Mm -hmm. something doing something like 
not not just contentment but like that's what brings like true joy nobody says like true joy is just a complete state of nothingness right or i'd say nobody maybe that's like a wild generalization but like for a lot of people and for and you can see that through experiences that are described and portrayed in like media and books and movies and tv shows like joy is about actively doing something or having something done or relationships or people um and it's never about just lazing around that's no one's platonic ideal yeah he, the metaphors that a little toddler like you know when they push a pencil and they see that their hand caused the pencil to move across the floor it's like a moment of ecstasy because it's when the toddler realized or us as humans realize that we can enact things into the world and um, our actions can lead directly to, con to consequences and that you know kind of in the adult version of that is like us wanting to contribute to the social world and yeah. wanting wanting to do something and then see it to completion too because something that he talks about that I think is really important is how managers sometimes break up tasks in such a way where workers don't really see how their contributions affect the overall mm -hmm. outcome of something because it's just so alienated like we, we talked about this before about the task of circling the numbers so that your client can claim compliance later yep and you're not and like you, you were told the bigger picture of that because it was a good day and somebody accidentally let that slip but otherwise you're just told you need to circle these numbers for yep. and period and so you're yep. just like wow well this sucks because yeah exactly this is the most tedious task and yeah, yeah. like context even the most tedious tasks and make people feel a little more involved but that's not what, you know, that's not what cogs in the wheel are there for. They're not there to see the bigger picture and learn and grow. Um, they're just here to be managed and to control their time. Right. Have you experienced that like in other ways apart from the circling of the numbers? Uh, I mean, all throughout my job, like it's become way less miserable once I knew what was going on and when I was involved in it. Like it was still stressful for many different reasons but I felt like I mean it was the kind of stress I would take over the stress of being a first year not knowing what they were doing and just being assigned these tasks which you felt like you had to do perfectly but you didn't understand why you were doing them like I would take the stress of the stress of being a senior so much more where I kind of knew exactly what was happening and I felt even in a field where I had never seen myself in where I knew I wasn't going to stay long term like I just felt so much better when I had ownership over a project and I just mm -hmm. knew what what we were doing why we were doing it why it had to be done a certain way what were the consequences of not doing it in a certain way and it just like it just made it so much um it, it made it so much more meaningful to do it that way and it made it so much more pleasant and so much less uh desperately soul-sucking yeah that's what they said in the book that actually like some things like some mundane tasks like I don't know like selling tickets or like whatever can mm -hmm. actually be meaningful if like oh I don't know you're selling tickets to an event that's like life-changing or like yeah. whatever and 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 you're testifying to that experience it's just like literally just telling me the bigger picture like brings me more internal satisfaction yeah exactly and it's a real testament to how much like like you said, it just goes back to wanting to be involved in something bigger than yourself and wanting to create something and wanting to 
contribute to something and you know it falls down a bit when you're doing something like corporate law because yeah. you even once you do realize the bigger picture you know you can you're like oh god I don't want to do that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's at best like mundane and then at worst actively harmful so it's not right. even like you get a little bit excited like oh I know the bigger picture like I can really manage this project I can do it well and then like but then at the end of the day you're like well I'm making a rich person richer so, you know, as well as I manage this project and understand it, it's not fulfilling these ultimate goals. But yeah, if you, I mean, I, I think that like, if you're doing mundane tasks for something that's ultimately meaningful and you understand how your mundane tasks contribute to something ultimately meaningful, like, I'm sure it makes you feel a lot better. I wish I had data to back it up, but it, it is. You do, your own personal experience. That's, yeah, that's important. True. That's true. That's yeah. true. And, but I'm talking about even more meaningful than that. Like, I imagine if you were doing um, data entry for the NHS, I know only two people who do this, but people seem to like enjoy their job enough. Oh, um, really? Yeah. The, yeah, well, the, that's the National Healthcare Service. In, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. And obviously, it's like the. And it works like semi well, right? I mean, yeah, you've, talk, you've talked about how it's like crumbling and, you know, and there's been yeah. a lot of disinvestment historically, but. Well, in the U.S., you know, we don't have any of that at all. So. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, it really is a gem of the U.K., the fact that you can get, like, free treatment for anything. You don't have to worry about healthcare costs. And, you know, a lot of people do take pride in it and its existence. And they have a, they're quite disorganized from personal experience, but they're also, you know, very, um, I, I mean, every, I've gotten amazing free healthcare. Mm. Um, and I can't complain about it at all and so I imagine like if you're working in the NHS you know you most probably believe in its mission and like they obviously uh, apart from doctors and nurses need a lot of administrators uh, to do data entry and stuff and I feel like that's something for example where like you don't feel like it's a bullshit job because you know even if you're doing stuff like putting names in an excel spreadsheet or or you know um, filling out forms like you know that this is hugely meaningful because you're keeping you're propping up a system that's keeping people alive and giving them healthcare um, for free. And that's a, you know, that's a really meaningful task. Yeah. And actually that's like a really important counterpoint to like Obama. And how he was saying that the reason we can't have Medicare for all is because like what's going to happen to all of the private health insurance agents. And Dave Gerber talks about how those jobs are archetypal bullshit jobs. And I think the difference between the two would be that the NHS actually like does function well enough that people are able to take pride in it. Whereas if you're yeah. in private health insurance in the U.S., you're just scamming cancer patients. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, what you're doing isn't going to make you feel good. You know, at best, you're giving someone free health care, but then at worst, you're bankrupting someone or right. contributing to a system that bankrupts someone for having cancer. I don't and think it's, I don't think at best it's free. It's like at best, <laughs> you're, like the medical bill only like partially cripples them. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> that is uh, so depressing. I know. <laughs> God, I'm I'm uh, I have to, I don't get it in the NHS entirely for free because I have to as an immigrant you have to pay to like oh I don't like that yeah I know it's ridiculous 
Well, I guess it's ridiculous in the sense that I'm paying taxes, so I contribute to my healthcare anyway. I see it for the years that I'm a student, for sure. I have definitely doubled. I've paid a lot into the NHS between taxes and my immigrant surcharge. Well, that's the thing. It's like, that's the myth about immigrants, quote unquote, not paying taxes. It's like, actually, immigrants do pay taxes, but then they don't get the social, the, the, sorry, the benefits that are, you know, circumscribed to citizens only, like, for example, free healthcare in within yeah. in the NHS context. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's really, I think that's really upsetting. Yeah. It, I mean, all immigration just as a whole. Right. <laughs> upsetting. I know. I was um, like, oh, wow, they're in that policy lies the beginning threads of Brexit. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. I can't even begin to get into that. You need a whole other. <laughs> I know. For the morass that is that is uh, the immigration system here. Yeah. Um, so the David Graeber talks about how kind of like the archetypal bullshit job is in the finance sector, but then also it's kind of it's like it's depressing because that that is a very powerful sector. It's actually the biggest contributor to political campaigns. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to break that down for the Kachimbonas. Like, what is the tie between the finance sector and this proliferation of bullshit jobs? Oh, that's a really tough one. And, you know, honestly, it's something that I wish he could have written uh, a sequel for. Because right. like, he does a really good job, like, setting the scene for us that, you know, these jobs... Uh, bust the myth of traditional capitalism they're not created to generate value Um, Mm -hmm. the incentives behind creating them are less to do with the market and where like demand um, intersects with supply and all of that and it's more of this like feudalistic culture where they're trying to buy your or, or even like a little bit feudalistic a little bit beyond feudalistic because they're trying to buy your time in a way that didn't Mm -hmm. even exist um, prior to the industrial revolution and um and that's why um and and that's how it works but I guess what he does what I thought he did not go very deeply into is why why is it important for the what are the incentives um and who is being incentivized Mm -hmm. to take a large portion of the workforce and put them in this um in these feudalistic conditions without obtaining anything out of it because you're not getting value from their labor because that's what the whole book is about um, but what are you getting out of it? Who is benefiting? And like, why, how does this system keep getting entrenched? And, you know, a few theories are like, it keeps people, you can't think of a better way to keep people compliant, right? Exactly. And it works. Um, I think it has to work hand in hand with them, um, especially in the US with debt. Because like you first put people into enormous amounts oh of debt. God. And then you like, <laughs> sure that they, because then they have no option but to enter a white collar mm-hmm. desk job. And right. then they know that they have to stay in that white collar desk job for an indefinite period. And it keeps them keeps them super compliant because you can't protest, you can't unionize, you can't like you mm-hmm. don't have time to strike, you don't have time to read literature that would open you up to different possibilities and ways mm-hmm. of being in the world that aren't just to, you know, facilitate the movement of finance and capital. It it just, yeah, it, it's the ultimate way to create a super compliant subject um and i think there's some i forgot the name of the book but there's a really good book written about how debt keeps us compliant as well and it's the primary tool and like wait david graber wrote that oh did david graber write that he wrote debt Mm -hmm. 
my partner and I have talked about that book because he starts off debt by talking about how first centuries, um, like not paying back your debt was seen as, or it's, it's been seen as sinful and is still seen as sinful. I can see how, yeah. And like those two things go hand in hand perfectly, right? I'm trying to like investigate what this other book was or if it was the same book, but, but yeah, no, those two things like absolutely go hand in hand you put people in loads of debt you put them in these bullshit they they only can satisfy those debts by like being in bullshit jobs and then both of them create this sort of religious self-feeding compulsion that you know you have to stay within the rules of the workplace and serve like the managers and sort of serve the interests of capital and uh you know inherit the rules of the workplace as your own and things like that um and yeah so so i think a big a big reason for why this happens is to create a compliant workforce that is also like on the side of capital because like if you work on a management job yeah yeah, you work on a finance job like you start thinking about how um you know your the interests of people who are way way richer than you will ever be are actually aligned with your own and so you know you right you're a temporarily embarrassed millionaire yeah yeah exactly ultimately your class interests are tied to Jeff Bezos because you're going to be the next Jeff Bezos just as soon as you get that exactly well and even if you don't think you're going to be the next Jeff Bezos no you're like oh I don't want like Amazon to crumble because I hold shares in Amazon or like I'm like a white collar employee of Amazon or you know or, or I work on Wall Street and if there's a market collapse then my job is going to be negatively affected so you sense the the panic in the um in everyone who worked in finance when Bernie Sanders was doing well I mm. say not not everyone like you know there are there were people like pockets of people who had like sympathies with him um and you know were like in the yeah, finance sector yeah <laughs> Magna, yeah. who the fuck do you know <laughs> by the way this is just Magnus context it's not these are not like numerous individuals okay it's probably like one or two like weirdos magnetos yeah exactly didn't David Graeber talk about a few as well like a few of his anecdotes were people who worked in like corporate financy jobs right True. Just, like low-key socialists and stuff and like that was just well that was his sample size and my sample size I'm like so my- over that I just, yeah. that I feel like that's only cis men doing that because actually yeah. now that I think about it I know this Latino man who I like thought was really cool in undergrad he like he was a playwright and I was like oh my god what an intellectual and then he went to law school and now does corporate tax law and then he like tried to make the argument to me that he was like oh no he was like doing it for subversive reasons he was like trying to like learn the tax code so like he could you know be subverted with it and it's like I was like no no you're fucking not dude like stop lying and then eventually he's like oh well, actually like you know I have a girlfriend and like, like I have like a certain cost of living and like she expects certain things and I was like okay fuck this like <laughs> and he would he would be one of these people that would be like I have socialist politics but to me it's like really okay well you're like where's your praxis okay because I'm tired of people who talk the talk and do not walk the walk I think it's like, um, I think it's a sort of not, not cognitive dissonance. It's actually, it's a sort of nihilism. It is, it's exactly that. It's yeah, exactly it's that. like nothing's going to change. Nothing's right. going to improve. I see the world for what it is, which is why I'm a socialist. Like I see what needs to be done and how it right. can be improved. But I also don't think anything's actually going to happen. And so I might as well like, you know, secure the bag while I, um, 
where like criti- criticize everyone else and like make right, myself at home else. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and like fit perfectly and it's just I mean I think it's just very disconcerting to see somebody who has strong principles not struggle with how to live a life according to those principles and I think that's one of the most important things to always hold on to no matter what circumstance you find yourself in you don't have to retroactively like morally justify it like I don't I don't need to go around saying yeah I'm in a corporate law job but like it's you know um, it's actually a good thing for all of these reasons like I can just be like this is the circumstance I found myself in and I have a lot of moral quandaries about it and uh, you know I might not want to broadcast them or talk them out with other people but I don't have to let go of like what what it meant morally and how I feel about it like there's no there's no reason to suppress that debate or retroactively justify it because you did it so it's okay right but yeah so I don't um like I said that's a little bit of a tangent because um, most people in the finance sector like freaked out right and like um, the idea of like you know Bernie Sanders a very very moderate socialist uh doing well in a primary like it was it and it like freaked out to an extent where like it, there was actual money that was going from Wall Street to fund other campaigns right then and, and mm-hmm. from the Democrats like there was a really really concerted effort to push him out and all of that doesn't come from just a few rich people it comes from like an entire industry that needs manpower um that's sort of designed to protect the interests of finance and capital and like rich shareholders and things like that and so I think like you need people on side for that um but again I, I think there's something he should explore more because I don't fully understand the dynamics of it but that's where I would begin to see that picture emerge I guess is is uh staffing like this body of people who are invested in upholding the interests of finance right mm-hmm. so David Graeber brings up how feminized labor is like the true critical thing that makes so many offices work <clears throat> and we talked about this in the prior episode, but actually we didn't discuss the gender aspect of it, I think, because we talked about how like it's some people's like whole jobs to, you know, write newsletters with feel good stories about the work being done mm-hmm. to kind of improve worker morale. But so much of that is emotional labor and is feminized labor and oftentimes is unpaid. Mm-hmm. Like you know, and I love I loved his point about how in history, actually, like this is actually kind of always been a phenomenon, and how like there's you know so many accomplishments that we attribute to men that were actually probably like their female secretaries who yeah were doing the work, like think Mad Men, and yep. you know. So I wanted to ask, can you explain how gender played into his analysis with this example, but also if- like other dimensions of it as well yeah I think there's like two aspects to it right because one is like um the the people who are doing the work that sort of props up an office but doesn't get paid so it's like organizing birthdays yeah organizing birthdays organizing like little celebrations um farewell cards for people Mm -hmm. social occasions like handling um difficult interactions when like someone's going through a personal tragedy or you know managing managing like how different people interact with each other and sort of soothing tensions and things like that so there's like that's one component and then I guess the other component is that you know uh, relegating people 
relegating women, sorry, to like secretarial positions and administrative positions and ones where they actually end up doing the meaningful work part of the bullshit job. And like, you know, I can think of so many people I know who are in positions like that, where mm-hmm. they like are administrators, work in, in places, whether it's law firms, universities, nonprofits, all of those places, but they like end up actually just managing a lot of the work that, you know, their male superior should be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, a professor or a law firm partner or something mm-hmm. they're doing a bulk of the the work and and they're not getting paid accordingly because because uh their role is just purely secretarial or administerial and they're just expected to do that sort of personnel management as a part of their job so like i guess it's not quite the same as unpaid labor but in a way it is because their jobs involve the inherent amount of unpaid labor and they're not being right. paid according to what they're actually doing which mm-hmm. is like half of their boss's job. Yeah, like holding the office together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so much. Every workplace that I hear about from my friends or that I've seen is there's just so much. Um, there's just um, so much intense organizational work that is done by like uh, female administrative assistants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Paralegals, I think a lot yeah, in the paralegals, um, law context. For example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you, how many, I mean, every single lawyer is probably able to tell you of a few paralegals who could do the job of like first year lawyers, second year yeah. lawyers, or yeah. third year lawyers. Oh like yeah, I work with them. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, tell exactly. them, I t- encourage them to go to law school and I also tell them about my real experiences so I can let them make decisions for themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but I do because it's like, I don't think that I, like other people don't see what I see, you know, because of they're racist and gender biases and that, but I'm like, wait, you are a talented ass legal thinker and you, you would be a badass lawyer if that is something that you so wanted to choose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like there's so, I mean, yeah, I just, I think it's like a well-documented phenomena and also it's like a well-documented phenomena in pop culture, right? Like I know Suits is the worst show ever, but like just almost expected that the secretaries and the paralegals in that show are like, as brilliant legal thinkers um, as like the men on the show, but they're female and they're not getting paid. And like, right. it's, it's, you know, it's such a, it's, it's a well documented, it's a well enough documented dynamic that I feel we all know it's low key true, but at the same time, like those people are not getting paid for their labor. And it, right. um, yeah. Yeah. It's, um it's a really depressing additional dimension to an already like bullshit workplace where there's hardly any real work to go around, but then the real work that is there to yes. go going to people who aren't paid enough to do it. Right. Did you ever feel this way in law school as well? Like I really powerful, I feel so strongly that we're almost trained for this from law school. Because- yes, we are. Yeah, every single event that you would organize as a part of a student group on campus, I feel like it was 90% of the time the women who were doing stuff like ordering the meals and like filing Mm -hmm. the receipts and like prepping the room before. And it's like, there's absolutely no reason why the woman should be the one doing it. But it's just this inherent need you feel as a woman that like, if I don't do it, no one will. And I'm really stressed about that. So I might as well go and do it because it's going to take a lot more effort to try and, you know, make someone else do it. And like you feel the split halfway between like, well, why shouldn't I do it? I'm a part of this group as much as anyone else. Like I shouldn't feel like I'm above doing this and I'm going to do it. 
But then like, you also feel like, wait, why should I be the one doing it? Well, I'm- like, why do I always do it is the question yeah. after that. Yeah. It's like, of course I can do it. But the issue is like, why am I always the one expected to do it? Mm-hmm. But I will say, okay, so I, I will say this is for sure a common phenomenon, but honestly, I was aware of this dynamic and shout, I will say shout out to one of the few white men that I would actually say are okay people, John Bonacorsi, because because yeah. <laughs> he, yes. he knew this dynamic too and he was really cognizant of it. And like we we led like a like a critical reading group together and like I did all the thought work of like choosing the articles and the mm-hmm. themes. And he would, he would order the food and schedule everything. And he would, he would literally just be like, like, tell me the tasks to do and I'll go do them. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So like yes, that is, oh. that's how you need to navigate it. You need to find, but the, you know, a good accomplice like that is few and far in between. But I just, I want to shout out that I did have that experience yes. that was like mitigated against every other experience where, yeah, I'm expected to take notes or like you know, send the Zoom link and send the agenda and all that. It's this very, very strong feeling you have of just like, I know nobody else is thinking of the bigger picture. Like, I know nobody else is like thinking of like, that all of these like small administerial tasks need to be done. Like, I just know that. And so because I'm the only one thinking of it, I have to do it or it won't get done and I'll feel awful. Like, and it's just, it's that feeling that I, I literally see it in partners in corporate law like female Mm. partners in corporate law take on a lot more responsibility for like just small things that should be handled or that they presume that you know you you think the juniors should handle it mid-levels should handle it but like senior the female partners are like no one is thinking about this i need to micromanage and i need to get it done Mm. where male partners are like it'll get done it's fine it's not it's it's beneath my like pay grade and like, it's just this, this really powerful sense that you get a feeling responsible for all of the like things that, you know, a lot of men consider beneath them because they're just so much more administerial and organizational and stuff. Also, though, shout out John, like Matt, Matt, <laughs> Matt McConnell was also the same and did a lot of yes. like, work. But like, yeah, these are, these are people who we know are hyper-conscious of things. Right. Like, they were aware it, of it. And that's why they yeah. intentionally went out of their way to be like, I'll do the calendar invite. Like, yeah. I'll send the email. Right? Like, and it's just, if you don't get someone who is that hyper-aware of the dynamic, you can almost be sure that unless you forcefully assign them a task they're not going to be the ones who do it yeah so okay so this is kind of this is venturing into a whole different area well not a whole different area actually no not a whole different area it's, it's a good, it's because it's a whole idea of like feminized labor in like a workplace right like right it's a bit, and get it just getting trained into that dynamic right from law school is sex work a bullshit job or is sex work a reflection of a bullshit society in your opinion oh i forgot that you have to remind me what did did david graver talk about this so I think, I think that actually what he did say is that he was like sex i think he did try and say sex work is a reflection of a bullshit society mm-hmm. but now I, now i want to go back into the book and actually see if that is what yeah. he said but let's let's say it like regardless of what he argued yeah using yeah. his using his analysis like, what do you think 
I feel like sex work is more like because he talks about the the jobs that are that, that are not bullshit jobs, but the jobs that are unpleasant but meaningful. Like, oh, um, like a sh- yeah, it's a shit job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, shit job. Sorry, yeah, that that was his term for it. Like, you know, and and it's a shit job not because it's meaningless, but more because the conditions under which you do it are terrible. Like, you're either underpaid, overworked, etc. I think sex work falls along the lines of a shit job where you're not doing because the whole idea of a bullshit job is that you're doing something that's meaningless that doesn't contribute to society in any way and you right. know a part of you knows whether it's consciously or not that it doesn't contribute to society um in a meaningful way and I don't know if the same can be said of sex work like obviously you can be exploited and you can be underpaid and there's you know a lot of complexities around it including like the criminalization of sex work <laughs> but ultimately it isn't it isn't something I think that you would think is meaningless, like fundamentally, like nonsensical and absurd in the same way. Yeah, I agree. Because uh, I think like it's a shit job in that it is providing a real service to people. And I think that the demand for sex work wouldn't go away if capitalism went away. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think it's a symptom of capitalism, which is I think is an argument that some people try and make. And there's nothing like inherently degrading about it because it's using your body for work in the same way that we all use our bodies to work. Yeah. And it's it's just the conditions that we have imposed on it that make it a shit job. But yeah. it it is it's actually an example of like the kind of he's talking about how especially with where we're at with technology actually like. Um, the need for humans to be doing jobs is fewer and fewer and actually like the remaining jobs are mostly like emotional labor jobs actually like mm-hmm. you know the customer service rep the cashier and and individuals who do sex work. yeah yeah the waiters is so much a is so much of what you do is emotional labor in all of those circumstances yes um, I was looking it up and I think um I don't know if he says this in the book itself but he does call sex workers um yeah just a member of the class that does shit jobs okay. um nannies and gardeners and chimney sweeps and sex workers and scullery maids very old-fashioned term and was that like a party uh, yeah well no I feel like they worked in houses oh like a a boarding house or or just a massive rich British house I think (laughs) isn't that what it is like when you're really rich you like have this massive house with like 10 like a lord or something and you have like, like a like Downton Abbey. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm sure they what are they called? Scullery <laughs> maids. <laughs> um, oh my god, that cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's what it is. I might be I might be mistaken, but I feel like that's what it is. Yeah. Well, when I was looking this up though, uh it's also a really lovely quote um on you know what is actually like meaningful work and it's like cleaning and polishing, watching and tending to, helping and nurturing and fixing and otherwise taking care of things. Um, You make a cup once, you wash it a thousand times and and how we don't think of those as like productive and so we don't value that labor but that's actually Mm. what's really meaningful and that uh, that resonates a lot with me. I love like uh, just the idea of like cleaning something, fixing something, keeping it in good condition, like I I got so much more pride out of cleaning my house every evening than I ever did at my job. 
That's true. Actually, like nothing brings me peace like a clean kitchen counter. Yep. Like my kitchen is almost always clean and it's just because that shit brings me instant gratitude and peace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it makes me, I feel so, I think I brought this up last time as well because it really like hurt me. But a lot of people's advice, like a massive, really insanely busy corporate law job is like, oh yeah, just like get a maid, get a cleaner, like, you know, get like your meals delivered. Yes, and, yeah. and it's just like, no, the things that bring me the most joy and pride and like, self-respect in the world are like doing my dishes and cleaning my house and cooking my own food and like I just feel really wretched at the idea of not being able to do those things and like the idea that you should outsource them um I always this is not exactly the same but one of my favorite books of all time is um The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin um one of the best books but the there's a part in that book where the guy Shevik from the um from the anarchist planet goes to the communist uh, to the capitalist planet um and he's just physically sickened at the uh, vision of a market because he just cannot fathom the idea of um, all these beautiful creations of people's labor being that alienated from them and being sold by people who had never met the people who made them or worked for them um and I I was like just such a powerful scene and like such a powerful testament to like how much pride we should have in the things we create and uh, what mm-hmm. we will, yeah, just just the things that we create and nurture and care for and fix and how much we're taught to push ourselves away from those things. For sure. And I feel like a flunky is kind of like the opposite of that. There's, he lists five types of BS jobs mm-hmm. and flunky one of them. Can you explain what a flunky is? Oh, they're the, oh, they're like the yes men right yes. yes the ones that this like, is such a category of people i realized these are people that get promoted yeah yeah they're exactly. the yes men they get yeah. go along to get along people the opposite yep. of me <laughs> yep yep exactly all of the just all of the ad, i can't even say admin people because we talked a lot about how much admin work is like feminized and that's definitely not this role so i kind of i'm trying to think of who they are in a workplace setting I actually don't think that it's even like position specific. Right. Like it, I think, yeah, because yeah, it feels more like a person thing, right? It's more of a, it's kind of, it's like a personality and an approach to work. You can, you can either, you know, have, <laughs> sound like such a, you can either have integrity or not. <laughs> yeah. but it's, you know, you can like try and have yourself guided by like a code of in, moral code of internal principles, or you could just like look at the work political landscape, see who has power and then align yourself with that individual so that you can stay safe, have job security and then get promoted. So, yeah. And I think it's like people, I think those people are also kind of willing to like cede some of their power, like Mm -hmm. cede some of their like maybe like decision-making authority or like cede some of their like substantive work to just be, to just have that job security, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then that way it would be a lot of like, I've just been, I've been watching The Office, which I like don't particularly like, but I really feel it's documenting a lot of like what mm-hmm. jobs is about, yes. um, which is really fascinating. But there's so many people like that in The Office, right? It's like a very arch typical, like, um, uh, yeah, just the sucker up, yes man sort of role that they, that they document. Um, yeah, like Dwight. Office. 
is that... yeah Dwight Dwight and Andy like both yeah are like absolute yes men and that's why I'm thinking like oh it's also like a middle management sort of thing because right. your position only exists um to get to make other people feel important um and and to uh yeah and, and to make um yeah there's nothing else other than to make other people feel important yeah. do you feel at all like because I wouldn't say being a prosecutor is a bullshit job, right? Like it could be an evil job, no, but it can't be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's, it's like a job. villain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But but the whole so much of law school is full of yes men and people okay. who would follow the rules and people who like want to replace their inherent moral systems with like the systems of an organization because it feels like more safe and secure. I always saw like the ultimate example of those people, like the people who wanted to work in government and be prosecutors and stuff like that, because they were like the most rule following and rule abiding and rule enforcing and such. But I wonder like how much like being a flunky is related to positions, not just like prosecutors, but like law enforcement and mm. um, and just oh, yeah. situations where you're like consistently supporting people of power, people in power. But I don't, I don't know, like he doesn't draw those lines. And I don't, I don't, I wasn't very clear on like, yeah, who a flunky would be in the workplace um, other than, you know, what he, what he sort of talked about, yes men and administrative yeah. professionals. But yeah, I wonder about the connections there. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about it being really fitting for a middle management person to be a flunky because mm-hmm. this is kind of like, that's a symptom of like people associating power and status with how many people you manage. So Mm -hmm. like some people's jobs are created, not because they're really neat, not because there's work that needs to be really done, but because that person wants to feel powerful. And um, so, you know, because not because it wasn't created because there's actual work, like a lot of your job is just being a flunky. Yeah. And I think the legal profession is actually quite interesting to me because because of the wide range of experiences, the difference between a solo practitioner and somebody who's a, like working on a huge firm mm-hmm. is, is like huge. Like, I think like you can't be a flunky if you're a solo practitioner, like you are doing your cases like from the beginning until the end. Yeah. But then at the same time, I, there, there's a loss of that expectation of autonomy once you join an organization I feel and mm-hmm. pro- we said that prosecutors are not a bullshit job but actually I think that there are bullshitized elements of it for sure yeah. because they they are kids pushing pencils as in they're like it, humans locking other humans up in jail mm-hmm. these are like real material consequences that they you know they see well do they actually but that's actually an issue that they don't literally see the consequences of their actions yeah. there are many prosecutors and judges who have never been to the jails or prisons that they send people every day it's not surprising uh, but, but it's depressing yeah but so, but still like you know you are materially changed you, you see the consequences of mm-hmm. your actions maybe not in a literal way but you know hopefully they think <laughs> and um like the flunky aspect of it is that um, there's like the the district attorney and that person has power for setting like, you know, enforcement priorities, prosecution priorities. And when you're a junior prosecutor, you don't have discretion. Like that's kind of, mm-hmm. that's, I think one of the most horrifying aspects of being a junior pro. I mean, it's all, it would all be horrifying to me, but the this junior prosecutor situation just appalls me where there is somebody who I think would probably describe herself as 
a progressive who went to go intern at a prosecutor's office and mm-hmm. talked about how like she was expected to prosecute this case where somebody's um, like a middle-aged woman and then her like you know kind of like older 20s daughter were having a crisis because the older woman was having like was ODing and the daughter just got really scared and called 911 and the mom ended up being fine but then what resulted is like her mom was being charged with drunk charges and you know obviously the daughter was horrified and then this person was like yeah I was like trying to advocate against it and but like you know ultimately the the senior prosecutors just tell you what to do and a lot of people wouldn't have said anything at all because the way that you get promoted as a prosecutor is by the number of cases that you prosecute successfully. Mm-hmm. And so there's this like disgusting incentive to turn off your morality and to you know kind of become a flunky in the sense of, oh, I'm, I'm going to go along to get along, even though I think that this person doesn't deserve to be in jail. Yep. Um, yep. And, you know, yeah. you say that, like, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking like, yeah being a flunky could be an exclusive position and and it is you know in a lot of special circumstances where they want to like make someone feel important and so they create this position um, of someone who's just there to make somebody feel important but then also being a flunky as you said it's just an element of so many jobs Mm -hmm. and like an element that you can't escape from and like there are times where it gets like super sinister like in a prosecutor's office where you know being making the senior prosecutor feel important and like keeping your job is like literally consigning people agreeing to like consign people to prison and jailing them and putting them in horrible conditions but also just in every kind of job I think there's an aspect of being a flunky because workplace hierarchies especially in the legal profession but a lot of different places are just so rigidly enforced that a part of your job is always going to be to make sure that the person in a position above you in a position of seniority above you feels like they rightfully have their place whether or not they do right I know I I think it's really important to point out that like it's I guess it can be a type but it's kind of pervasive across the bullshit types yeah and he talks about that too he talks about how like a lot of jobs are like you know aspects of all of it and like it's some jobs fit clearly into these like five roles that he's assigned and then some of them have like a little bit of elements of all of them yeah he so one of the other types that he talked about is someone who's a duct taper which I think mm-hmm. is something that's particularly likely to be feminized and this is exactly what we we're talking about about you know it's like or organizing someone's organizing your working life around caring about a certain value mm-hmm. valued person who's quote-unquote more important um and I wanted to ask if you agree that a duct taper is a work aspect of work or a type of work that's more likely to be feminized yeah I think in certain aspects because a lot of duct taping is also didn't he talk about one classic example he gave was the whole industries of like using free software that is not exactly fit for purpose and then another industry springs up of trying mm-hmm. to or fix or correct that software because your free one was was not adept so that's what I would think of more as like the category of duct paper or like I think there's so many aspects of the insurance industry for example that are all or or the definitely industry that are all duct taping because you have like one enormously inefficient system that mm-hmm. has no incentive to get better but then people who see how they can monetize off of uh, of all the inefficiencies in that system like I actually see a lot in um having made five million visa applications in my life 
to live in. <laughs> you really see it a lot because the actual bureaucracy that's behind granting you a visa is obviously slow and inefficient, has no incentive to be better because, you know, pe- people don't want to make immigrants' lives easier or anything. But then they realize that there are rich immigrants and people who have money. And so there's this mm-hmm. whole industry that's based around checking your documents or making sure that you they get submitted the right way or making sure your application doesn't have any, like, stupid flaws like photo- like your photograph is incorrectly taken or your documents are incorrectly notarized and so there's this whole industry that's created around minimizing the gaps um, in in the inefficient immigration system but only if you have enough money to be able to do it so there's there's stuff like that and and I think when there's such an incentive for monetization it becomes less feminized so like mm. women are duct tapers in the workplace in the sense that there's mm-hmm. a lot of problems that come up that don't need to come up because um, because men don't consider those problems enough and don't consider their uh, their issues within their solve. responsibility yeah within their responsibilities to solve and so women end up doing a lot of unmonetized duct taping but then I think like professional duct taping is like yeah just these industries that emerge completely need true consulting uh, I feel like yeah. it's a perfect example of this yeah yeah so much of consulting oh my gosh consulting is probably like the arch typical bullshit job i know that's a grift man (laughs) if i wanted to get rich off of something stupid i would totally open up like a diversity inclusion equity firm and be like oh yes hire me and i will (laughs) i will help you check that box (laughs) it's so i would never do that so immoral yeah gosh but then you could just if you can scam a bunch of rich law firms I I know I mean trust me that is like something that seriously tempts me so much especially because I could there are people who are on that grift and they do it really badly you know like fucking like 1990s racial theory (laughs) oh my god actually sorry not to completely create a tangent but i'm reading i'm gonna well i'm reading but i've only read like five pages of it but there is this (laughs) but uh i want to pitch it for if you've not already read it for uh one of your next uh lit review episodes but it's called um what white people can do next by emma debiri Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's just a book that critiques all of the myriad books on, you know, um, addressing white people yes. and like critiques the entire industry of like writing books that are very like corporatized DNI sort of literature. Um, and she's deliberately sort of titled it in a way that makes it seem like it's one of those books. Um, but then it's just a massive critique of those books in capitalism. So... Oh my god, that's so amazing! Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I haven't. I'll let you know how it goes, but if it's good, you should also. Um, I'll review it. it for sure because, yeah. you know, post the summer explosion of protest, there was also you know so many people really performatively buying books about race, and so many of them were like, well, like that book, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Yeah, yeah, this like, exactly. Yes, yeah. that woman, she, like, when I'm saying it's a grift, it is a fucking grift that people are getting yeah. rich off of. Like, she, yeah. people pay her, like, $5,000 for one workshop. Jesus. Yes. Incredible. It's such an industry. Mm-hmm. That's a, honestly, bullshit jobs. Like, that's actually... I'm trying to think of what category that would fit into. Box checker. Seriously, because it's like, it's like ensuring, yes. it's like guarding against getting sued for yes. racial or sex discrimination. 
Yep. It's literally just checking that box so that if you're sued, somebody, you know, your defense is like, oh no, like we take this so seriously. Yeah. We did a three hour meeting with Roman D'Angelo. Yep. (laughs) It's so true. It's, um, yeah, it's a box checker, a little bit of, um, duct taper. Yeah. Yeah. Because Um, it's like, they're not actually trying to fix like structural problems. You know, it's like this person is there. It's like, they're creating yeah. an industry off of monetizing something that uh it's like not gonna fix the issue ultimately exactly. it's just duct taping it exactly exactly um so i can, can really see that can you explain the difference between a flunky and a goon because yes. we described flunky and then to me goon was like very similar but he felt the need to differentiate so yeah, what's the difference? i i have to uh i have to say that i wasn't very clear about the difference as well because a flunky is like a people pleaser then a goon is like people whose jobs only exist because other people employ them so they don't have is the goon almost like a counterpart to the flunky like you know you're sort mm. of middle management versus senior management like they're only there not to actually perform a function of any sort, but to sort of be a a visible representation of a role in an organization. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree that it's about the optics because he says Mm -hmm. that the goon comes in to correct damage done by the boss. So it's also like not a problem that needed to exist. It wasn't an inevitable problem. Yeah. But it's like they come in regardless of the qualifications for solving the problem. So I feel like it's even, it's an even bigger facade, like, they don't even have qualifications to do what they're allegedly supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, it was bad. I almost thought about like in-house counsel as like one of like staff attorneys for um for like. But a- how would they be goons? Well, because because I feel they are qualified. Yeah, and they have yeah. licenses. <laughs> yeah, no, they do have licenses. It's true, <laughs> but like. I feel like from experience, when there's an actual legal problem, it's oh right, right, right. <laughs> a law firm that does it. It's never actually like, or I guess more than in-house counsel. I guess what I'm thinking of is also a bit like HR. Yeah, like they're there to like represent the organization, but they're not actually there to do anything because the whole idea is that they protect the organization and they protect them exactly. by like existing, like sort of by by yeah, just just being a visual representation of the role without actually doing anything fulfilling or like without actually performing a function that um yeah i'm thinking of i'm flipping through and looking at his examples of uh goons and he also talks about like corporate lawyers as goons <laughs> um but it's wow like, interesting that's the opposite of what we we're saying yeah we're like in-house counsel's a goon and then the big guns are the law firm which i agree that is the dynamic yeah what the or it's like the doj comes in for the in-house yeah. like agency council yeah yeah exactly i don't i mean to be fair the part of the book i was least excited about overall is his like little taxonomy i feel yeah it was like kind of fun and you know you could play like a little game which which um description fits in like what jobs and stuff but i don't know I don't know how representative I found that five is like a totality of what bullshit jobs is and how much it's useful even to classify bullshit jobs and do like those kind of things. I mean, I think it's useful to a degree that you see the different ways in which jobs can be useless. Um, yeah. But yeah, beyond that, like I wasn't too sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of an impossible task that he undertook. And so he was inevitably going to make some mistakes. Yeah. Like, I personally think Flunky and Goon is the same thing. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think it's like that consequential that the Goon isn't qualified or that the Flunky is or isn't qualified because like, they're not actually there to solve the core problem. And so for me, it's the same execution of just like bullshitting and like being there to perform a dance for the manager. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think he like talks a bit about Things like call call center jobs oh, and yes. like cold calling jobs being a bit of goons because like you're pushing something on someone else, but like you're not contributing to society and making people stay worse by like cold calling <laughs> them and stuff. And, like, you're pushing the agenda of your organization on behalf of the organizer to like show that you're doing something, but like not actually achieving something. So it's a mixture of like aggression and deception. Um, which I guess- <laughs> Which I guess is also like what corporate lawyers do then and like his sort of understanding. <laughs> so true. Right? Like you just send aggression like, and like, deception. Yeah, you send like cease and desist letters. You yeah, send you intimidate people. Yeah, yeah, and you know like you're not going to sue these people and you know like, you know, there's so much of you understand that your job is not, you're not actually going to sue them. You're never intending to sue them. What you're right. trying to do is like push someone in a negative position so that they will do what you want them to do yeah in that sense like you're not even kind of doing doing your job that you have a license for because you know you're never going to sue them you're not yeah you're not trying to go to court yeah you're just weaponizing your knowledge and positionality into pushing someone to do something right Mm -hmm. I feel like the call center job is like the ultimate it's like like this whole thing he says is like like managers are bullshit generators like they just make there is no work but they still make up work to like keep you oppressed and I think the call center is exactly that because like who has ever like actually bought the product or like donated the money or like done the thing that the cold caller wanted you to do I've only I've like tried to become a better person so I've just I've tried to like politely say oh sorry no but like I used to be like no stop calling me (laughs) like I would get really mad and that there's I just I don't, I know for a fact that that work is not productive because I, I work, actually, I worked in a call center when I was a freshman. Oh, wow. Yeah, for Yale to, oh my God, I was cold calling like parents to donate money. And it was such oh. a mess because they would be like, are you fucking kidding me? I already pay $50,000 a year and you're trying to get more money from me. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Oh. So I, for me, that whole profession is just, it's like a bullshit generator. Like we don't need that. All those people who do that could just have UBI and like do whatever they wanted. And it, I promise whatever they would do would be more productive than that call center job. Yeah, it would absolutely not be missed. It's a completely baffling industry. And I don't understand it's I mean, I think it's a really good case study for his whole like idea of um, how these jobs don't actually generate monetary value and they don't need to exist for those reasons. Like I cannot imagine the monetary value uh, for an organization a telemarketer generates and what the actual intended purpose of that job is other than like as you say to show that we're doing something and to show that we're pushing something I um, I, I felt like a flat catcher even though I don't think oh, that was like yeah. the intended purpose of it but that is yeah. what it was because yeah. yeah it's like you're just somebody to yell at you know I think uh, customer service reps especially for airlines I think are yeah. like the quintessential flat catchers so much so yeah, I guess like I guess it's a mixture of like being um a goon and a flat cla- flat catcher, even though they both seem like polar opposites of each other. Like you're almost like the foot soldier, I guess. 
because you're the one doing yes. the aggression, but then you're also the one like catching all of the impact of that aggression. Like when you have uh, like you know anyone who has really asinine, confusing like Kafka esque bureaucratic rules, and you have like customers trying to navigate them, and like you have to really rigidly enforce these rules, but then you're also like catching all the flack because um, people people don't understand why those rules are there in the first place. I feel like I had to deal with like a really Kafka-esque bureaucratic nightmare recently, but I forgot what it was, but I thought it was like- You really suppressed that memory. I really did. I'd like, I remember just thinking like, this is the most absurd thing that I have ever been a part of in my whole life. Um, And I don't, I don't remember what it is, but I guess I'm glad I suppressed it. But yeah, customer service really it, it makes me feel more despondent about capitalism than anything else. I know, because I hate that for them. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I had a, I had an experience recently where American like fucked us over. And actually, it was in the news because in one weekend they canceled 500 flights coming out of Dallas, and this was like on our way back from Belize, and um, it was just like a ton of people in line, and like people like the people in front of us were just like yelling at this poor woman, and like my partner was like oh hi like I'm sorry it must be so difficult you know to have to deal with all this and she was like no it's really not a big issue for me because they don't pay me enough to care (laughs) I was like I know that's right yes (laughs) you know if only all people had this attitude like I knew I could never I would take it so personally even though I know it's, it's it's something that you have to just sort of ignore I actually do remember what my horrendous bureaucratic nightmare was. I was trying to cancel my American credit card because I mm. don't live in America. Yeah. But the thing was, it was registered to my college ID and my American phone, both of which I no longer have. Oh. So I was just trying to call them. Your college like, ID? How, is, how does that even happen? Like, well, my law school How is that a valid? Oh, wait, is that as a valid? As in my law school email ID. Uh, oh, got it, got it. Yeah, 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 like my Stanford email IDs and my American phone and like, it was, you know, obviously like my bad to forget to cancel that before I left. But no. you know, that, like um it was it was fine, like it was all paid off and everything, or like there was like a little bit of a balance which I asked them to like pay off and that was mm-hmm. fine. But I was just like, I want this statement because I want to know what the charge was, um, and and uh, you know, just make sure that it was all legit. And it's my own credit card statement. I yeah. can't log in through your website because I've forgotten my password. Um, I can't use your uh, feature to recover my password because I don't have access to the email ID. I was like, I have my social security number and I have my passport. Like I can absolutely prove to you that it's me. Right. I just don't have an American phone number or the original email address. Can you please just find a way to give me my statements? And they were like, no, we can't. Like, there's nothing we can do we like they, they did agree to cancel my card but they're like we can't prove it to you we can't send you any documents we that's can't. bizarre and i was just like this feels this i was just like <laughs> and they're like we can't verify your identity and i was like but i'm, I'm me <laughs> i don't know what else i'm supposed to do and they were like oh why don't you just like send us uh your american uh driving license and i was like but this is you're not understanding i'm not american <laughs> I have no way to obtain. I have. I literally have a passport. It is considered the premium ID document. Right, the premium. I don't know if I told you this joke already, but Julio Torres, who's like quickly becoming one of my favorite comedians, Mm -hmm. made this joke about how living in the U.S. is like every day there's a new form that you need to fill out and that you that you don't 
that you forget to fill out and every day every day that passes the consequence of not filling out that form just gets worse and worse <laughs> god that um, it is so true like your story is so true. It, it gives heart palpitations to even think about it like bureaucracy is is just my I think it's such an example to get back into it of like bullshit jobs, like just the whole structure of like corporate bureaucracy. And it just like, I just feel it. There's nothing more disempowering than corporate bureaucracy because you just feel like you're not talking to real people who understand like the nuances of your situation and, uh, and the consequences are grave because like, you know, it's stuff like your credit history and uh just sensitive like aspects of your id and like your employment and ability to get a house and so many things depend on this and more so in america than anywhere else right How depressing is it that for most middle class people, the majority of their socializing is with their coworkers, and the workplace is this social and political minefield to navigate that's full of paranoia regarding who you can trust and who you can't. So depressing. So depressing. I'm not really friends with any of my coworkers, um, and I try to socialize as much as I can outside of the job. Um, but it is, it's like how it, I think we talked a lot about how media portrays the workplace in the last episode as well. Um, And I think it's like, it's so true, right? Like you don't see people in the media as being people outside of their jobs. Like every TV show you watch, like whether it's a cop show or whether it's a hospital show or whether it's an office show, like people's entire social lives revolve solely around their workplace their besties their love interests like Mm -hmm. their evenings like everything's in the workplace and you know it's a little bit like oh right because that's the premise of the show and so we want to like not even yeah it's it's not because like that is American culture too and it's I think it is a reflection of American culture that just it's just like that people would think it's weird if you don't show like people's job because yeah. even if the premise is like you just follow this woman's life well if you follow her life you have to show where you she have works to follow her job yeah I wonder how if you like I don't, I don't know if anyone's actually like analyzed this or not um or, or if it's true but I wonder if you like look at the pro- portion of American shows that are set in a workplace or like have a workplace as their predominant like site versus shows in other countries or other cultures mm. there's like more american shows that are centered on a workplace or like you know even as you say if it's not centered on a workplace it's still like heavily involves the workplace in some way but most shows are actually just set around a, a workplace like the only notable exceptions i can think of are like friends or something you know right like ones that are explicitly centered around the friends group but most most shows all all police procedurals, all documentary, like all dramas about like writers, all law dramas, like just every every genre you can think of is like a workplace oriented genre. And like shows like Friends and also like Girlfriends are kind of a relic of the past because, <laughs> and I would say that, well, okay, I've said this before, people have gotten really bad because people feel very strongly about Friends, but I think that the rea- Bravo reality show Vanderpump Rules is kind of like like the modern friends um oh my 
Magna, are you kidding me? Oh my God, you're fun employed and you never watch Vanderpump Rules. I am no, so I'm jealous of you. You need to oh make yourself, like a whiskey chai and fucking enjoy that show. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but what I was going to say is because, okay, so the reason why I think it's like the modern friends is because it's like a group of mostly white, stereotypically attractive, like LA, Hollywood, you know, aspiring models and actresses, attractive people Mm -hmm. who work in a restaurant that Lisa Vanderpump, one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills owns. And you follow their relationship drama and their friendship drama because they're very incestuous. Mm -hmm. But it's different from Friends because the focal point of the show is the restaurant, is their working lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think of selling sunset sounds like a part of that genre as well, like a yeah. like you know, beautiful woman in LA, but it's also like their job selling real estate. Exactly. Um, which is like a huge part of the of the thing. Yeah, it sounds very similar to that. Um yeah. Gosh. And, and it's the kind of like they like commodified their friendships and their relationships mm-hmm. because they it's like this the drama centers around these two women best friends who are like ride or dies the kind of like the leader of the friend group is dating this alpha male who's like the leader quote-unquote of like the male friend it's it's much but like somehow this group of people like literally did exist (laughs) wow this sounds wild I know you need to watch it it's honestly some of the best reality tv I've seen like the first three seasons of that show gold I've said it before I'm like if you if you are a cultural appreciator you need to watch the show because okay (laughs) it's like I I think it sets it's like setting the standards for reality show I love it yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah no I like you said I'm unemployed this sounds like a good way to use my time yes okay yeah. so with the last few minutes that I have with you mm-hmm. I wanted to switch to talking about the vaccine in India mm-hmm. so in April amidst the public outcry regarding vaccine access for India Adar Poonawala called on Biden to lift the embargo on raw materials via Twitter and then because of that he kind of became this public hero figure for doing so Mm-hmm. Can you explain why that's disingenuous? Yeah, because he he then clarified later, and many people <laughs> clarified later that it had nothing to do with the production of like the actual vaccines in India, and so it was just all like a smokescreen. And so, like you know, while there was this very right focus, I think, on the West to release their hold on vaccine patents and uh, to support like a, a trips waiver at the WTO, I think that he took advantage of a time where like India's humanitarian crisis was so catastrophic Mm -hmm. to put like his um, for-profit pharma manufacturing uh, company and his demands at at the center and sort of shift the discourse away from how uh, him as well as um, and his 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 organization the Serum Institute of India as well as Mm -hmm. um, Bharat Biotech, the other big pharma manufacturing company in India, were actually hugely monetizing off of the vaccine. Like I haven't, I don't know this for a fact, like are we one of the few countries um, or is India one of the few countries that is actually selling the vaccine privately? Yes. Um, yeah. So, you yeah. know. Or it's, it's, it's very expensive also. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, like, yes, they're like among the few countries that are charging and also charging a lot. Yeah, yeah. And so it really, you know, I think it really shifted the narrative at the time towards um, Biden's uh, export restrictions on these certain raw materials, when that wasn't 
the center point of the vaccine crisis in the first place. And like, you know, the vaccine crisis is obviously generated from a variety of factors, uh, both internal and external. Um, but, um, but yeah, but it just was a complete smokescreen, basically. Yeah, so the average person in India makes like around $50 a month and brought biotech, which developed the COVID-vaccine COVID vaccine with public yeah. <laughs> COVID with public funds, has been charging Indian folks exorbitant rates for each shot up to $540 for states and then $16 for private hospitals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. yeah, and that's the, that's the problem, right, is the, the profits that they're making off of individual doses, both selling them privately to hospitals who then like will charge another markup but also the price at which they're selling it to the states and the central government or the federal government mm -hmm. is, is what is really the sort of exploitation of the pandemic here and and this is you know the end point of a very long and tortured story where like first they were selling to the states and they had different prices for the states and the center and then the center took over and then the uh, center was like solely negotiating but it mm -hmm. it speaks to a problem both in India and globally, the, the idea that like, even when we're not paying for vaccines, uh, personally, or, or in cases like India, where we are, the fact that vaccine manufacturers are negotiating different mm -hmm. prices with mm -hmm. different customers is like the center of like global vaccine apartheid. And it's um, yes. really distressing because, you know, you think yes. like, oh, you know, we've overcome big pharma. This is not like HIV. Who said that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's true. But like, you know, there's not, well, I guess it's more the absence of critique of big pharma, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. People are so mm -hmm. grateful to be getting these vaccines and getting them for free um, that we're not looking at the bigger picture here, which is that they're not selling them for free. Like governments are paying for them and governments are paying um, different prices for them. And, you know, and in some point in India, states were supposed to procure them privately. Right. A whole insane other tangent, but hopefully that's been put into bed now. But yeah, but it's it's just, um, I think that something that's really gone under the radar in all the critiques that are being made um, is just how much pharmaceutical companies in India um, and over the world are profiting off this pandemic to an unprecedented degree. Yeah, I really appreciate you using the phrase smokescreen because that's exactly what Adar Punawala was doing. Like, you know, it, like, because publicly it was like, we need the TRIPS waiver so that we can end this vaccine apartheid. But he personally wanted the TRIPS waiver because he wanted to be able to compete in European and US markets, yeah. which Serum has already started. Like, it acquired a Netherlands company and it's growing its European presence. And um, one of the critiques of like why kind of mainstream media did, did allow him to be painted as a hero and not as somebody who's making money off of the vaccine, you know, which, the morality of that. And one critique is that the framing of this is like still very Cold War, mm -hmm. global South versus global North narrative that actually ignores how powerful Punawala is and how rich he is. Do you yep. agree with that? Yeah, yeah, no, I really think so. And honestly, I didn't think of this aspect before, like the articles that you sent me about how the TRIPS waiver is being used as a smokescreen to sort of just allow him to uh, lower his bottom line, basically, and to make his vaccines even cheaper and undercut his competitors, um, which is, you know, and, and he is absolutely someone who has been made uh, a lot of money from the pandemic and is looking yeah. to even more. And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's 
it's really depressing. Um, but it's also like, it's a very complex one for me, I think, because I think the TRIPS waiver is still like, I can't see a way towards vaccinating the entire world without it. Um, because it's just impossible for a few select manufacturers to generate the capacity to, to manufacture enough vaccines to vaccinate the whole world for free uh, in time to beat variants. Like, I just, I don't see how that's possible. But I think as this article that you sent pointed out, and as you're saying, like, I think it's an important aspect to consider, like, who is profiting off of a TRIPS, vac trips waiver? And why is it, you know, it are the uh, incentives behind put it, pushing it to the center of discourse um, skewed? Right. And, and um, yeah, because I, I just think it's important to point out how the health crisis didn't need to go down the way that it did in India. Yeah. Serum had the capacity to produce 5,000 doses of Covishield per minute since January. Jesus. And in, yeah, so the vaccine is supposed to be available to every adult in India per Modi's public promises. How successful has the vaccine rollout been in India? I don't. I mean... I think it's it's got its successes and failures, but I think as of as of last month, it was like five percent of the population has been fully vaccinated, or is that as of a few days ago? So yeah. like I think um, I think three hundred and fifty million people have received their first dose as of a week ago, mm -hmm. and seventy nine million have received both doses. So like you know we always knew that vaccinating India is, was going to be a huge challenge. But I think that the vaccine, you know, India does have the vac the infrastructure for a much grander rollout than it has seen right now, because like this is a country that, you know, has, has dealt with a lot of public health crises and has a set infrastructure for mass in inoculation. And, mm -hmm. um, and the fact that its vaccine drive has been sort of intercepted by a lot of profiteering and a lot of mismanagement is is a real testament to um yeah just just the complete failure of it and with sort of the third wave looming ahead i mean mm -hmm. it's really it's really terrifying to see what will happen and how how yet how the vaccine rollout is going to is going to improve yeah it's the like the free market approach that was taken where the central government bought only half of the vaccine supply and then left India's 28 states and private hospitals to then compete for the remaining doses on the private market is, has proven just totally disastrous because these companies are down to inflate the price and make a huge profit when people are dying. That, um, thankfully, that was rolled back because that was, um, that was just unconscionable. I was um, just impossible because a lot of vaccine, uh, especially international vaccine manufacturers, just wouldn't negotiate with the states at all. <laughs> like they would only negotiate with the central government. So um, mm -hmm. a lot of states just didn't have the capacity to roll out any vaccines at all. Like literally the vaccine program stopped because like the states didn't have the capacity to procure or roll out these vaccines. And it was something that required a lot of central coordination. So that was a, a huge misstep. Um, in uh, in the vaccine crisis. So I guess I wanted to talk explicitly about the morality of individuals like Ador Punwala and Jeff Bezos making a fortune off of the pandemic. In India, 38 new billionaires were minted in the past year. Um, 
the and the combined wealth of the country's billionaires went up by 90.4 percent oh my god that is actually so striking <laughs> to actually um digest did that you, did you also see like the direct transfer of wealth that happened from uh labor to capital it was like i don't remember yeah. the figures like three billion or something like was lost from labor and three billion was gained by like capital yeah, and it was I like striking, that. like direct wealth transfer that happened through the pandemic. So many people have become richer off the pandemic, and it's all it's it includes people who directly profited off the pandemic, which is a lot. Which is you know, as you say, like all of the pharmaceutical manufacturers and uh, CEOs and and uh, billionaires associated with pharma, and then just a lot of like associated um, billionaires as well, like uh, delivery company CEOs. Mm -hmm that are selling mm -hmm. shares in um, IPOs and stuff is like Jeff Bezos. Um, just, yeah, it's, this pandemic is like, I guess one of the most unprecedented direct wealth transfers that has happened from the working class. Like, yeah. And like, okay. and it's just, um, I, it's morally completely repulsive. And I don't know, I don't know how, this is going to be fixed like how is this a tenable situation how is this um, not. suffered so much and lost so much like where are yeah. we going to go from here right and you know people are so like emotionally devastated from the losses that have we've incurred from the first waves of COVID and to think that there's another one looming and that we could have solved this issue or seriously mitigated it it's so depressing so so depressing yeah it just it's it's um I don't have the words for it I wish I did <laughs> I know I know there's not enough like, words to say right? how fucking devastating it is it's like you know when David Graeber wrote bullshit jobs he could not account for how bullshit our jobs have been mm. revealed to be from the pandemic I feel the same about Naomi Klein writing the shock doctrine it's like oh you haven't even seen how much like master <laughs> capitalism can really, really take foot until like, I actually don't know what Navi um, Klein has said about, about COVID. I mean, I'm sure she's just rehashing her arguments because they're all super applicable um, to, uh, to the current situation. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's really like a slap in the face almost to see mm -hmm. leftists like having certain theories of the world and the pandemic just making them like on steroids i guess i know that's it's, true that's how i feel about foucault and his theories about prison yeah as well like oh you don't even know yeah how much we're surveilled when you're talking about the panopticon <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's yeah. like it's like people read foucault or the shock doctrine or bullshit jobs and thought it was like a manual and we're like yeah <laughs> let's let's do like now we know it let's take it like to the next step it reminds me of this this slightly uh, tangential but I think the creator of BuzzFeed was like actually a PhD student in like late capitalism and the spectacle and about how we would be consuming like mindless frivolous information under late capitalism um because there was you know because the real news would be cannibalized and stuff and he wrote his thesis on that and then he just went on to create BuzzFeed <laughs> what yes that is so nihilistic yeah I yeah can't. exactly exactly okay. so i feel like this is what's happening here oh, God. okay well we need to end on a positive note so yeah. i was gonna say um do you have any good recommendations for the gachimbones this week you've recommended elena ferrante's novels and the dispossessed 
is it what is like keeping you what is giving you hope this week i know it's a hard one it's a tall order yeah yeah i know i know well i'm going to i haven't read it yet so i have i cannot promise that it's any good but it comes highly recommended from a uh, from a dear friend um i'm reading this magic realism sort of novel oh i love uh, that called, yeah it's called um rivers of london mm. and it's about unfortunately about a cop so sorry <laughs> but it's about like a magic policeman who okay. like, apparently just deals with magic related cases it's about like just rivers being alive and spirits and magic and it's all set in london so i'm hoping i can get past the cop bit um <laughs> and just really get into like i just i just love um books that have a very powerful sense of place Mm-hmm. Um, and I like it even more like that's why I love the Ferrante novels because they have such a powerful sense of time and place and um, that's what I was recommended this book as that has just a very powerful sense of London so, oh awesome cool yeah I'm hoping yeah what about you um let's see oh I just well this is a lit review pick but I'm endorsing it again because I just absolutely loved it but mm-hmm. I read The Lonely Letters by Ashton Crawley I think and it's it's just this beautiful meditation where the author is writing letters to someone that they call moth and moth is like a composite of a lot of people but it's still also like like the experiences between a and moth are still like semi-autobiographical or like semi-fictional and Mm. it's a um who's a, a black queer pentecostal church worshiper who then like leaves the church once they come into their queerness but is still like trying to reconcile the the beauty of like the sensorial experience of being a black pentecostal worshiper and kind of sort of trying to salvage that experience and also reconcile it and and trying to figure out how we can live otherwise worlds yeah in in these like normative structures and it was it's so 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 good I think you would really like it yeah that sounds like totally the kind of thing I would super enjoy oh my Mm -hmm. gosh okay yeah I'll look that up thank you that's a great recommendation for sure okay well Magna thank you so much for coming on to the lit review it's a joy to have you always well actually no this is going to be a special episode that's like lit review preview but also the Mm -hmm. vaccine update so this will be coming out for the public and if you enjoyed our conversation about bullshit jobs then you should become a patron so you can get clued into the rest of the conversations that's amazing (laughs) patron, guys. all right bye magna thank you so much for coming on to the podcast thank you for having me always a pleasure yeah